0: Wow, so close. So close to each other. I love it. That shirt looks great on you. Thanks. It feels like I'm
1: not wearing a shirt. It's so soft. It's the best. (laughs) Yay. So I'm wearing one of our Cocktails and Conspiracy podcast shirts, the white one. If you haven't gotten one, get it. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really, you did such a good, Uh, like. Thank you. Assessment, like yeah. a, you did bake-offs well, between, like for shirts. sure,
0: for sure. I'm very, very picky. So, about how my did t-shirts. you how
1: did you find it? Did you just read a bunch of reviews?
0: I actually looked at the, um, uh, like all the materials, that, like uh. that it was made out of. Um, I did some research and then I bought a few, did the comparison, and just comparison fell in love with shopper. how soft these were. Yeah, yeah. I'm
1: excited. So, you can get these um through Instagram or our website. Yes. And we have some new designs coming out. Yes. We'll come out with some men's ones soon. We will. We can't discriminate. No. Because we have a lot of guys that listen. Thanks, guys. Well, anyways, guys... Welcome to Cocktails and Conspiracy. Welcome, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy Friday.
0: Oh, and it's our golden episode. It is our golden
1: episode.
0: It's our 31st. It's our 31st, and we're both 31. So yeah. we're doing a special topic today.
1: Yes. This is actually a listener request. Thank <laughs> you,
0: Rachel, for this awesome oh. topic. Yeah. It hits very close to home. It is. Fucking super close to my home.
1: Exactly. Like... You know, stones throw away. Mm-hmm. So we we're actually covering, like you said, something very close to home, right next door to your home.
0: On a, oh my god, on Eleventh Street, Eleventh and <gasps> Studewood is where most of the, the murders stuff happened. happened. I know, and I live crazy. off Eleventh Street, y'all.
1: It's crazy. Um, it's crazy. It's really weird. Um So we're it's the Candyman killer, aka Houston mass murderer. Dean Coral. Dean Disgusting the devil. Dean. <laughs> Disgusting Dean. Yeah. Disgusting Dean. And so, because of that topic, we are drinking something called liquid candy today. and uh, It'll get you drunk. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm going to be <laughs> shit-faced by the end of this. Yes. Mark my words.
1: <laughs> I promise. Guaranteed. Yes.
0: Guaranteed. <laughs> so, what is this liquid candy cocktail so made out of?
1: This is um, one part. Pineapple infused vodka didn't make my own. Shout out to Sky Vodka, and then I'm um, a half parts watermelon liqueur, and that's it. And that's it. <laughs> and then I did top it with Topo Chico because it needed like a little fizziness. Yes, thank you so for, for doing straight that. Straight alcohol, and it tastes like a liquid Jolly Rancher.
0: It does. It's pretty good. I know it's pretty good. Yeah. So I like it. Drink up. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. cheers cheers yeah. Hey. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay so you guys our question of the week this week is from shauna b and the question is would you rather be able to talk with animals or speak all foreign languages of the oh, world oh
1: crap that's hard because you know how much I already talk to Moogs all the time.
0: I know. I would love to talk to Bebs. I would
1: love to talk to animals.
0: But also, like, how cool would it be to be able to I've speak I fantasize about
1: being able to speak, like, every language. Me too. I, I think, think it's I would, sexy. I think it's awesome. There's this guy in college that could speak, like, five languages, and I was like, how does how does your head hold all that yeah. together?
0: Crazy. And it's just, like, a great party track.
1: It is. Mm-hmm. I I would choose the foreign
0: languages. Me too.
1: 100%. I'd become an international businesswoman. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh my gosh. If you could speak like Mandarin, do you know like how bomb you would be? I would like just start
0: some... speaking it every day and be
1: like, oh, oops. <laughs> Pardon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's French, not Mandarin, but you know. Okay. It sounds day. beautiful.
1: Pardon. Pardon. Yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. I love that question. Thanks, Shauna. Thanks. That was a okay. good question. Okay, so let's dive in. Okay. So give us a little background on Dean Coral. Okay, Dean's going.
0: Disgusting Dean. hmm So, the always smiling Dean Coral was known for passing out sweets to kids in the heights Ugh. where his family had a candy factory. But that smile was a mask, and behind it was one of the most brutal calculating serial killers of the 20th century. And actually, not a lot of people know about it.
1: Mm-mm. So that that was actually a kind of a weird fact that I found when I was researching this is that besides like a couple of movies that were made that were shelved pretty quickly, yeah, this has not been a pervasive story. Like there is and there's still, as we'll come to find out, there's still some unknown bodies. So oh, uh,
0: terrible, yeah, so it, terrible. Okay. So, between 1970 and 1973, Coral, with two teenaged accomplices, Wayne Henley Jr. and David Owen Brooks, lured teen boys and young men into his car with promises of rides, drugs, and partying. Coral then tortured, raped, and killed his victims inside his rent houses and apartments across Houston. The spree ended only after Wayne Henley finally shot 33-year-old Coral during the attempted rape of a victim on August 8, 1973. Mm-hmm. When police arrived, 17-year-old Henley confessed to his role in at least 28 murders, mm-hmm. including six slayings he committed. And this led investigators to unmarked graves throughout the Houston area. So, let's talk about Disgusting how do, you,
1: where do you, How do you get like this?
0: So, Dean Coral was born in 1939 into a contentious family. His parents divorced, remarried, and divorced again while he was still a child. And then his mother remarried Jake West. Um, And Jake West, I thought this was really funny. He was a traveling clocks salesman. So old school. I know. I love it. When Coral was 16 and the whole family moved to Vider, Texas, Mrs. Coral and her second husband started Pecan Prince. Which was a candy shop. Dean Coral and his brother Stanley both worked for the business operating out of the family garage. Most of the family's business was in Houston, so Coral's mother and stepfather relocated there and opened up a candy store. After he graduated from high school, Dean Coral relocated to Houston as well, where he continued to work for the family business. So, in 1963, Coral's mother and stepfather divorced, and his mother opened up her own candy shop called Coral Candy Company. Soon after opening the new business, a teenage male employee complained that Coral made inappropriate sexual advances towards him. So he was, like, really, really weird kind of from the start. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like his mother was just in denial. Blind. Yeah. Totally
1: blind to it. And and you'll read, like, <clears throat> you know, people's impression of him. is like, I mean, from, like, surface level, he was nice. He was quiet. Like, and he actually dated women and... And, like, but he was a total mama's boy. And yeah. And, like, on surface level, he just seemed like a... Like a normal guy. at a candy shop.
0: Yeah. And um, Coral's mother was really, really conservative, and she hated homosexuals. And so this might have something to do with him kind of snapping later because... Right. Um, he
1: probably was, or gay, but obviously yeah. he couldn't come out. And, look, this is the 60s. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like it was... You know, the most open minded times of our culture. Right.
0: Yeah. This wasn't really accepted in the 60s in Houston, Texas. Mm-mm. So, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> after this teenage male complained, uh, Coral's mother fired him because uh-huh. she just wasn't, she just didn't believe him. She's like, there's no way he would make sexual advances towards you. Yeah. He's not gay. Yeah. And this, this happened uh, quite a few times. So Coral spent almost a year in the U.S. Army in 1964 through 1965, and according to records, I mean, who knows really, right, but he realized at this time that he was a homosexual. After his military service, Coral returned to Houston and resumed working at the Family Candy Company. Coral earned the nickname The Candyman because he frequently handed out free candy to young kids in the area. Cool. So creepy. Cool. Cool. Coral also befriended many young boys in the area, some of whom would hang around the candy shop. So, um, yeah, he was just like this big creep t- that loved to give candy to people that were candy. way younger than him. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I love candy. For
1: sure. Sorry but. to open this to a Okay. So, you know, besides Dean Coral in the story, the other two main players or the main uh, characters in the story are two teenagers, David Brooks and Wayne Henley Jr. So, although the two teenagers were the products of what were then called broken homes, a.k.a. like their parents were divorced, and they had dropped out of school, they were hardly regarded around the heights as troublemakers. Yeah. Like, I mean, they were just... They were just normal little kids. I mean, yeah, they are yeah. So, David Brooks, we'll start with him. Brooks first met Coral in the mid '60s when he was 10 or 11 years old. Um, Brooks had stopped at the Coral Candy Factory, which was actually just across the street from his elementary school. Sweet, yeah, even better, yeah. It's not bet, the creepiest place. I in bet the world. disgusting Dean fucking loved that. Loved it. So David's parents were divorced. His mother was in Beaumont, which is about an hour and 15 east, going towards Louisiana from Houston. Um, And David was living alone with his father, Alton, who was a very tough, redneck, paving contractor. So, Brooks's former attorney, Jim Skelton, who still practices in Houston today, said... Really? Yeah. uh, This is a quote from him. He said, I don't think Alton really liked David, which is David Brooks, all that much because he was a sickly kid who wore these hippie glasses. And here came Dean who didn't call him his, a sissy. He didn't make fun of his glasses. He didn't make him feel, you know, like a wuss. Um, so David idolized Dean. Aww. Um, And uh, so this is still the attorney. He said, he told me that Dean was the first adult male who didn't make fun of him. Ugh. Which is just, it breaks my heart because, you know... I mean, a they positive, were manipulated. I, I mean, he needed a, a positive male influences. on especially little boys are so important. And so I mean, this guy, like Coral, is a fucking predator. Like, yeah. And know. how
0: old is he? Twelve. You're so mm, impressionable like at that age. Ten
1: or eleven. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so, in in David Brooks' oral confession, he admitted to allow in Coral to perform sexual acts upon him from the age of 12 for which he was paid with gifts or cash. I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into detail about what he did. It's pretty gratuitous details. Okay. So I'll just... So there's this article where I got a lot of my information. It's a Texas Monthly. It's pretty long. Yeah,
0: the Texas Monthly, The Lost Boys. Yes,
1: it's a great article. So if you want to, like... There's some details that are just, like, I just don't want to say them. Like, you can read them, but it's 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 disgusting. Um, so, according to those who knew Brooks, the introspective young teenager was not gay. In fact, he had a girlfriend who lived in the Heights. Um, so, this is Jim Skelton again saying, But you have to understand that Dean had become David's father figure. He had taken care of him, given him money when he needed it, and let him stay with him whenever David needed to get it, to get away from his real father. You know, a man like that can have a lot of influence over a young, insecure boy. Of course. Of course. So, it wasn't law. So, this, I mean, all this stuff was happening to him, like, you know, in the mid-60s. So, like, a year after he met Dean, like, that's when he first started, like, you know, making him do all of this stuff. Right? This sexual stuff, right? Ugh. But a few years later... It wasn't long before David Brooks realized that Coral was driven by much darker needs. So in mid-December, Brooks, who was at 15 at the time, walked unannounced into Coral's apartment. In the confession, he gave police two and a half years later. So he was 17 and um, Henley was 18 when, like, all of this comes to a head. This story comes to a head. So in the confession he gave police two and a half years later, he said, you know, In mid-December when he was 15, he said that he saw two naked boys tied to Coral's bed. Coral, also naked, was molesting him. What are you doing here? Coral snapped. And Brooks turned around and left. And later, he said that Coral told him he was a part of a gay pornography ring and that he had been paid to send those boys out to California to pose for photos. At some point... Brooks said Coral changed his story. He told Brooks he had killed the boys and buried them in his storage shed. So... So that's when it kind of, like, began. Yeah. Because he walked in on... He saw him. Yeah. He witnessed it. Right. So, in return for, like, him witnessing that event that first time, in return for his silence, Dean Coral promised him a car, and David Brooks agreed. And so, Coral subsequently bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette.
0: Wow. Um,
1: Brooks was later told by Coral that the two youths had been murdered, like I said, and he was offered $200 for any boy he could lure into Coral's apartment. Which yeah. he accepted. I mean, $200, so ne- like, back in... Yeah. ...the late 60s, early 70s? So now he's, like... 70s, he's in. He's in.
0: He's inviting him into this sick, sick mm-hmm. thing. So
1: this is what, like... So this is... This is what they would do. This is how they they would lure people. So, um, he said that they lured boys into Coral's Plymouth GTX muscle car, or his white van, asking if they needed a ride or if they wanted to go drink beer. Um, After taking the boys to one of Coral's apartments or rent houses, which Dean Coral was constantly moving around. Like, he had a bunch of different places. And I think that's why he didn't get caught. Mm -hmm. Because... And we can talk about, like, yeah, like the investigation, like why why was there any investigation into like all these missing kids you know popping around, but because he was doing it in different places, so like, yeah, so I think that there he was not just in one spot, right, like a true sketchy asshole, right, so um, and he would only sometimes only stay in one place for like a few weeks and then he'd go to a different place mm-hmm. um so they would help him. Like, strip boys naked, tape their mouths, bind their hands and legs, and fasten them with handcuffs to a sheet of plywood that was two and a half feet wide and eight feet long. And then often they would force the boys to write a letter to their parents, or sometimes they would call them, letting them know they were okay and would be back soon. And then there's descriptions of, like, what he would do. I'll I'll read that. I can't can't read it out loud. It's just
0: unimaginable. We'll say
1: that. Yeah. So... All right, so let me move on to Wayne Henley. So Henley, by contrast, was a brash teenager. So he wasn't, like, you know, little mousy, like... He was a little rebel, Right. He had once... um, He was a brash teenager who had once been brought up on a juvenile assault charge. He drank beer, smoked pot, and chased girls. And he could usually be found at one of the neighborhood hangouts, the swimming pool, the Long John Silvers on 23rd, or the Jack in the Box on 20th. Those were his hangouts. What? Are they still there? So I know Long
0: John Silver's isn't there because I love Long John Silver's.
1: I am always wondering. I drive by yeah. and I'm like,
0: who's keeping Long John Silver's in business? I am.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jack in the Box, Twentieth and Shepard. It's it, it. It's still there. Weird.
1: That's Ew. where we would hang out as an innocent boy before all this happened. Okay. Well, I mean, but still. It's it's so weird. Well, it, the Heights is a historic I district. Know. Things
0: don't change that much. The weirdest part is I live on Eleventh and Tay lives on Studio Ed.
1: I know. No, just right there. It could have been us if we were boys. And you were in the born in the you know fifties. Right. So many things. So glad you aren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So it
1: all worked out okay. It's all the way it should be. <laughs> um, so, like Brooks, Henley had endured a difficult relationship with his father, who, according to public reports, would get drunk and physically assault his wife and children. Just the good old white boy of the 60s, you know, male. The 60s way. The 60s way. Yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Um, after Henley's parents divorced in 1970 – so remember, David Brooks has – he's already, like, known Dean Coral since the mid-60s. So he's right. already known him for a while. They're so already friends. Henley got in, and he wasn't – he didn't know him as long as right. Brooks. So after Henley's parents divorced in 1970, he dropped out of junior high and began working part-time to help his mother – when Brooks, whom he had known for a few years, introduced him to Dean Coral in 1971, Hemley was impressed. So, yeah, because he's like this older, cool guy that
0: has all this sh- and fucking that makes candy, you not feel and, like, like cars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and so, he's like accepting of them and like making them feel good. But
1: then he's making them do these like horrible, fucked up things. Like it's just uh, sick, sick. Yeah. So, so this is a quote from himley's Um, maybe dean was considering me as one of his next victims but we hit it off he was this smart clean cut nicely dressed man he listened to me he explained things to me it's just men be good dads out there you could prevent a lot of this shit yeah um and tell your daughters and your sons to trust no one exactly so, um, Henley says, I'll be honest with you. This was a part of a penitentiary, like, visiting room um, mm-hmm. interview. He said, I'll be honest with you. It was important that Dean liked me, he was kind. That's it, that's all they just looking for someone to be kind. So, that's so, so when he sad. became so when Henley became, uh, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Dean began to come around the Henley house, he worked on. Mrs. Henley's car got along so well with all the Henley boys that a charmed Mrs. Henley invited him to Easter dinner. Like, he just wormed his way into their family. Oh, my God. Psychopath. Right. So, the way that Dean hooked Henley was telling him that if he ever needed anything to sell, to make some money, to help out his mother, even if it was stolen, Coral could unload it. So... Basically saying like, hey, look
0: hint hint. hint, hint, steal something. Right. Yeah.
1: Then Coral told Henley the same story he had once used on Brooks about belonging to an organization that sold boys into a homosexual porn ring in California, and he also promised Henley two hundred dollars for every boy he brought in. So So um, were they just
0: like, Oh, okay.
1: Well well, you know, he had groomed, Like think of a better had, lie. Well, he had groomed David Brooks for years. Yeah. And and he was insecure. And, Who knows how he twisted Henley, it? Henley, you know, he was already kind of a little troublemaker, and then he needed money. I think they're, they were really, like, his family was really yeah. short on money. So um, Henley seemed <sighs> to be thrilled by the idea of being a part of a mysterious crime ring something that went, like, far beyond his life in the Heights. Like, you know, he felt like it was a small town, like, small community, because that's how – this is how – he and we've talked about this before. Houston is really, like, organized by neighborhoods. Like, it's a huge city. Right. But everyone kind of stays in their own little, like, area quite a bit. So, um, so basically, um, I mean – like, here's, here's one example. Like, driving around with Coral one afternoon, Henley saw a teenager with long hair, asked him if he wanted to smoke some pot, and soon had him in the car and at Coral's apartment. Henley then left. So, he'd leave the boy there with him. The next day, Coral paid him $200. And he said, in his confession, he said, a day or so later, I found out Dean had killed that boy. Oh, my God. So... So basically like his killing spree didn't really start until like 1970. So he was abusing, you know, David Brooks and I'm sure more boys, but like he didn't start killing people until September 1970. Oh yeah,
0: cuz at first he was just raping them and,
1: right? Right. Well, yeah, great. Um so um So, they're known to have killed a minimum of twenty teenagers and young men between September 1970 and August 1973, although it is suspected that the true number of victims may be 29 or more.
0: So, they found out in 2018, they confirmed that it is 29 at the minimum. 29 or more. Okay.
1: Okay. Cool. Um, So... In the summer of 1973, David Brooks began to break away. He married his girlfriend after she got pregnant. They moved into an apartment outside the Heights. Um, So he still had his own separate life. Yeah. David Brooks. Yeah. yeah but he's probably traumatized. I mean, oh. that poor man. Yeah. So inter- inter- interesting, like, fast facts. So even to this day, David Brooks is not, besides his, like, first confession, he does not give interviews. He does not talk about it. But... Wayne Henley will, like, he gives a lot of interviews. You can see there's some videos and stuff of him talking. But, um, so, um, so, you know, he married his girlfriend after she got pregnant. They moved into an apartment outside the Heights. So Wayne Henley, too, tried to put some distance between himself and Coral, attempting to enlist in the Navy, but he was rejected because of his limited education. I couldn't leave anyway, Henley says. If I wasn't around... I knew Dean would go after one of my little brothers, who he, who he always liked a little too much. Oh, fuck. Yeah, so he he's like, I, I can't leave. Like, I'm stuck in this horrible fucking trap. Yeah. So the last, um, so we're going to talk about Lamar Drive, the street that he ended, you know, toward, uh, this is the end, like, where he lived, and, like, the last victim. So, and this
0: is the house in Pasadena, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
1: So no known victims were actually killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. Um, so it's known that Coral suffered from Hydrocell? Let's What's say. that? It's um, it is a uh, it's a ton of like body fluid, like in your cavities, like um, in your like body a, cavity. Like it's, a it's an accumulation of serious of, of serous fluid in a body cavity. So, um, so what does that do? It's often caused by fluid secreted from a remnant piece of um, this is a lot of science. What but is it called? Hydrocele. H y d r o c e l e. Okay, it's a fluid-filled
0: sac around a testicle. Mm-hmm. Often first noticed as swelling of the scrotum. So, so you can it can be caused by inflammation or injury of the scrotum or along the channels, who is probably doing, like, some kinky-ass Ew, shit I mean, yeah. and injured himself or something.
1: Mm-hmm. So, it was thought that he was suffering from one of those in early 1973. Okay. Um, so, around that time, Henley had temporarily moved away from Houston to Mount Pleasant in an apparent effort to distance himself, um... So that, you know, because Brooks had already broken away, and Henley was trying to, and then he was also sick, so that, people think that that's why there was a lull in the killings, like, earlier that year. Um, Nonetheless, from June, Coral's rates of killings increased dramatically, and both Henley and Brooks later testified to the increase in the level of brutality of the murders committed while Coral resided at Lamar Drive. Um henry uh henley later compared the acceleration and frequency of killings and the increase in the brutality exhibited by coral towards his victim to being like a bloodlust god adding fuck yeah adding that henley and brooks would instinctively know when coral was to announce that he quote-unquote needed to do a new boy oh my god due to the fact he would appear restless be smoking cigarettes and making reflex movements. Ugh. Fuck him. I, I hate him. I hate him so much. Oh my god. So on August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton. Draymala. Draymala? D-R-E-Y-M-A-L-A. Draymula? Draymala? Draymula. Draymala. It's A. -A. -A -A. yeah, Dramala. So James. James. Dramala. 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 (laughs) Yeah. James Stanton Dramala. So he was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass bottles to resell.
0: Oh, my God. I heard this story. This is so sad. So this guy. Oh, my God. He was collecting bottles that night to, um, exchange for money for a date the next night.
1: Mm. I know. I hate it. I hope he's
0: just burning. How sweet and innocent
1: is that, though?
0: I hate it. I hate it so
1: much. Really, like I said, like, this is why I can't go into a lot of details. It is just, it's abhorrent. Um, so, at Coral's home, James was tied to Coral's torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. David Brooks later described James as a small blonde boy for whom he had bought a pizza and in whose company he had spent 45 minutes before the youth was attacked. Jesus. Mm-hmm. I know. So, all right.
0: Okay. So that was his last victim. Mm-hmm. So on the evening of August 7th, 1973, Wayne Henley, who was 17 at the time, Invited his friend Timothy Curley, who was 19, to attend a party at Dean Coral's Pasadena residence. Timothy was a casual acquaintance of Coral's and was intended to be his next victim. He accepted the invite, and the three men went to Coral's house and got super fucked up. So they were like drinking, smoking, sniffing paint. Yeah, of yeah. bags, right? They love to do that. They love to sniff paint. After hours of drinking, smoking, and sniffing paint, Timothy and Wayne left to go get sandwiches. I love that. They drove... (laughs) Hungry. And what's better when you're fucked up than a good sandwich? Oh, nothing. Love it. They drove back to their house in the Heights and parked Timothy's car at Wayne Henley's house. Wayne then got out and went to go check on his neighbor slash friend, 15-year-old Rhonda Williams. Rhonda came from an abusive household and had been beaten that night by her drunk asshole father.
1: God.
0: Yeah. So he... You know, he asked Timothy, you know, park the car. I want to go check on my friend. And she had just come out, like, beaten up and stuff. So Wayne Henley then invited Rhonda back to Coral's house with him, and the three of them got into Timothy's car and headed back to Coral's house. They arrived to Dean's house around 3 a.m., and Coral was pissed yeah. that they had brought a girl over. He had a huge hissy fit, claiming that uh, – Henley had quote unquote ruined everything so then Henley explained the circumstance and that Rhonda did not want to return home she had been beaten up by her dad and she just wanted a place to stay so then Coral calmed down and the three teenagers continued to get fucked up as Coral watched them intently Uh so he's just like sitting in the corner like watching these kids get fucked up after a couple of hours Henley Curly and Rhonda Williams all passed out When Wayne Henley woke up, he was laying on his stomach with his wrists handcuffed behind his back, his mouth taped shut, and ankles bound together. Timothy Curley was laying next to Wayne. He was completely naked and was tightly bound with nylon rope, gagged, and had adhesive tape like all over his face. And he was laying face down. Oh my god! I know. When Coral noticed that Henley removed the gag from his mouth and that he was actually protesting against Coral's actions, like he was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Coral was pissed, and he, was, he just reiterated like he was mad because Henley brought that girl home. Right. Um, he told him he was going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Timothy Curley, initially stating, man, you blew it bringing that girl, before shouting, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. Ugh. He then repeatedly kicked Rhonda Williams in the chest before dragging Henley into his kitchen and placing a 22 caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley then calmed Coral, promising to participate in the torture and the murder of both Rhonda Williams and Timothy Curley if Coral released him. So then Coral agreed. He tricked Mm -hmm. him. He untied Henley and then carried Curley and Rhonda Williams into his bedroom and tied them on opposite sides of the torture board. Curly was on his stomach, Williams was on her back. Coral then handed Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Rhonda Williams' clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Curly, Henley would do likewise to Williams. So he's like, hey, I'm going to go rape this guy, you rape the girl. Henley began cutting away Williams' clothes as Coral undressed and began to assault and torture Curly. Both Curly and Williams had awakened by this point. Curly began uh, withering and shouting as Williams, whose gag Henley had removed, lifted her head and asked Henley, is this for real? So she yes. was, she like came to and looked at him. She said, is this actually happening? Yeah, like, like what the fuck? And then Henley answered yes. Williams then asked Henley, are you going to do anything about it? And that's when Wayne Henley snapped. So, Henley then asked Coral to take Williams into another room. Coral ignored him, and Henley then grabbed Coral's pistol. So, Coral made the mistake of putting his pistol down, and Henley grabbed it. And he shouted, you've gone far enough, Coral. I can't go any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. And then, Coral started approaching Henley, saying, kill me, Wayne, kill me, which is such a fucking nightmare. Oh, my God. Henley stepped back a few paces as Coral continued to advance upon him, shouting, Kill me, Wayne. You won't do it. Kill me, Wayne. Henley then fired at Coral, hitting him in the forehead. The bullet failed to fully penetrate Coral's skull and literally ricocheted off his skull. Yeah, because
1: that's so thin and, like, the skin's thin. It's not going to, like, this. uh, Yeah. A fucking monster. Oh, my
0: God. So, in true monster Frankenstein form, he continued to lurch towards henley henley then fired hitting coral in the left shoulder still doesn't die coral then runs out of the room hitting the wall in the hallway henley then fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as coral slid down the wall in the hallway outside of the room where the two other teenagers were bound good job henley coral died where he fell his naked body facing the wall so crazy so, after he had shot Coral, Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. So, they were all freaking the fuck yeah, out. of course. It's a right? nightmare. So, Henley suggested to Curly and Williams that they just should leave. They're like, let's get the fuck out of here. But then Curly replied, no, we should call the police. Henley agreed, looked up the number for the Pasadena police, and called them. So, at 8.24 a.m., On August 8th, 1973, Henley placed a call to the Pasadena police. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. Hey, Velma. R-O-G. In his call, Henley blurted to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Henley gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As Curly, Williams, and Henley waited upon Coral's porch for the police to arrive, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had... Done that four or five times, meaning he had shot someone by kill or killed someone by shooting them four or five times. Really? Okay. Cool. Minutes later, a Pasadena police car arrived at twenty twenty Lamar Drive. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside of the house and the officer noted the twenty-two caliber pistol on the driveway near the trio. Henley told the officer that he was the individual who had made the call and indicated the body of Dean Coral was inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and placing Henley, Williams, and Curly inside of the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Coral's body inside the hallway. The officer then returned to the car and read Henley his Miranda rights. Mm-hmm. In response, Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Oh my God. Curly later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived to Lamar Drive, Henley had informed him, If you aren't my friend i could have gotten two hundred dollars for you
1: oh my god oh my god
0: so fucked up so during his confession henley admitted that he had assisted coral in several abductions and murders and that he had actively participated in the torture and mutilation of six or eight victims prior to the murder he told authorities that most victims had been buried in a Southwest Houston boat shed with others buried at Lake Sam Rayburn and High Island Beach. Coral had paid up to $200 for each victim he or Brooks were able to lure to his apartment. And so there, he told you know, him everything. And,
1: remember, like, even though there's, like, 29 victims, a lot of the times those, like, Brooks and Henley would leave. They wouldn't actually right. be, like, right. involved in the act. Right. So, Just, but that's saying, like, he did that... He was actually like involved in like yeah six or eight a counts. handful yeah. for sure.
0: So actually, like initially, police were skeptical of Henley's claims. I mean, it that's how out of this world. Yeah, was. that's how out there this is. He assumed that the sole homicide of the case was that of Coral. Henley was quite insistent, however, and upon his recalling of the names of three boys—Cobble, Hillagest, and Jones whom he had stated that he and david brooks had procured for coral the police accepted that there was something to his claims as all three teenagers yeah and all three teenagers were listed as missing um at the houston police headquarters david hillegist had been reporting missing in the summer of 1971 so two years prior Mm -hmm. and the other two boys had been missing for just two weeks so when police searched Coral's home, they found a plywood torture board measuring eight by two feet.
1: And you can see the police photos of this. Um,
0: Ugh. 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 Also found at Coral's address was a large hunting knife, rolls of clear plastic of the same type used to cover the floor, a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cells to give increased volume, an electric motor with loose wires attached. Eight pairs of handcuffs. My God, calm down. A number of dildos, mm. thin glass tubes, and lengths of rope. Okay, Coral's van. Of course, he had a van. Of course, he had a van. Parked in the driveway, conveyed a similar impression. The rear windows of the van were sealed by opaque blue curtains. Oh my God, so fucking sketchy. Least, like, he Are you has kidding the me?
1: Origin of the like white van free candy. Yeah. That's him. Yeah. Like this is how it, that, and we all joke make jokes about like, you know, white vans and like free candy kids. I mean, that's this is where literally it comes from. Have, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Ugh. In the rear of the vehicle, police found a coil of rope, a swatch of a beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled at the mm. sides. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. Disgusting. I
1: want to kill him. Inside all, all right. of the
0: crates were several strands of human hair. Mm-hmm. So, in the end, Dean Quarrell, along with his two accomplices, abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered at least 29 teenage boys between 1970 and 1973 in Houston, Texas. The Houston police claimed that they were all runaways in an attempt to cover up what must be one of the grossest displays of inadequacy of any police department. I mean, this is just sick. The truth is that some of the victims were traveling no farther than the corner store. Um, For three years, Houston authorities did nothing but add names to a list on a clipboard. Mm -hmm. Just another missing boy, another missing Mm -hmm. boy. No one seemed impressed by the fact that an unusually large number of runaways in the Heights involved teenage boys who attended the same school. Mm. Eleven boys from the same school went missing at one time and still were not looked into by the police was or it that even elementary the school. school
1: across from the candy shop. I don't know. I don't know. I just thought of that. But uh, come on. Like come on. That's <sighs> craziness to yeah. me.
0: Ignorance.
1: So there is and a laziness. And and just uh, I don't know what it was. I don't, I don't know. I mean, look, one thing that we can say about you know our our you know our detectives and police force that we have today I mean, there's so many, there's so much better technology and procedures and processes. I mean, still, it can't be perfect, but, like, that's what infuriates, and I think I've said this before, like, that's what infuriates me about hearing about, like, these cold cases or, like, these things that happened back in the day, like, even, like, remember, like, nine one one like, didn't used to exist, like, it's, it's it's, it's absolute, like, it infuriates me because I'm like...
0: It infuriates me because I hold them to a higher standard. Those are our heroes. Right. They're supposed to be saving us. And the fact that they just blamed all of these on these kids running away, like, even when the parents were like, no, that, it. there's no way my kid would run away. And
1: I think, I think it's gotten, like, so much better, though. Oh, for sure. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So, one thing... <laughs> And listen to this. So um, I I don't know his uh, first name, but Chief Short. He was like the main um, guy on this from the police. His mm-hmm. name was Chief Short. Let's Short. Probably. So, short. so the one thing Chief Short did do in a misguided attempt to make sure such crimes didn't happen again was order his officers to raid the city's gay bars. They thought so. So, this guy, Ray Hill, is one of Houston's, like, first gay activists. He said they thought they were all child molesters and killers. Like, because they're gay. Which is fucking ridiculous. I
0: don't even think Dean Corll was gay. I think he was a pedophile.
1: Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Exactly. And that's different than being gay, obviously. Yes. So, some residents, claiming that they were afraid that other sex deviates... "Quote unquote," might be operating in the neighborhood. Circulated a petition asking the city council to impose a nightly curfew on juveniles, forgetting that almost all of Coral's abductions took place in broad daylight. Like what the fuck, people! Like both those things I just said did not that didn't solve any of the issues. Look at look it's at,
0: total ignorance. Total ignorance.
1: Why is there a juvenile curfew? Nothing happened. Like look at the facts of the case it's crazy what, another thing so when they actually went to go like find the bodies and like those in the boathouse and like the lakes and all that kind of stuff instead of having law enforcement professionals dig up the bodies the houston pol- police department had prisoners do the work using metal shovels instead of delicate instruments Um, Especially the boat shed. Um, The stench inside the boat shed full of decomposing corpses in the Texas heat was described as unbearable. The workers were buried up to their knees in sledge and (gasps) and corpses that had undergone putrefaction.
0: What's putrefaction?
1: I think that's like, I don't know what that is. I I, kind of think I know. Um, oh, it's the process of decaying or rotting in a body or other organic matter. So yeah, they they had prisoners dig up the corpses. So, so down, you know, like they, yeah, crazy. So okay, so let's um, so the trial, convictions, and incarceration. So both um, David Brooks and Wayne um, Henley are they got life in prison. And they're still yeah. in prison today. So, Wayne Henley and David Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Um, Henley was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1st, 1974, almost a year later. Um, charged with six murders be- uh, committed between March 1972 and July 1973. Uh, prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including Tim Curley. Mm-hmm. And Who youth, was there the night that it Dean all stopped, was shot. right. And a youth named Billy uh Ridinger, who had been lured. Lured? Lord? Lord. Not, not lured.
0: I'm from Texas, thought, too, y'all. I thought lured sounded right. I thought it
1: was lured. <laughs> I thought it was lured. <laughs> I think I might say lured. instead of lord. Yeah. not It had been lured. <laughs> I cannot say that word. I've been lur- I really do want to say lured. Just say it. All right. Had been lured <laughs> right. to Coral's Schuler Street Address by Henley Brooks and Coral in 1972. So Billy, like, they, they tried to get him. Well, they got him there in 1972. Um, Ridinger testified that at Coral's home, he was tied to Coral's torture board and assaulted repeatedly by Coral before he was released. So he actually didn't kill him. He released oh, him. Oh, Um, Yeah, and I don't know why. Um, Other incriminating testimony came from police officers who read from Henley's written statements. In one part of his confession, Henley had described his luring luring of two of the victims for whose murder he had been brought to trial, Charles Cobble and Marty Jones, to Coral's Pasadena house. Um, Henley had confessed that after their initial abuse and torture at Coral's home, Cobble and Jones each had one wrist and ankle bound to the same side of Coral's torture board. The youth were then forced by Coral to fight each other with the promise that the youth who beat the other to death would be allowed to live. <laughs> He's I the devil. I hate him. He's the devil. Mm. Um, after several hours of each youth beating the other, Jones who was tied to a board and forced to watch Charles Cobble again be assaulted, tortured, and shot to death before he himself was raped, tortured, and strangled with a Venetian blind cord. The two youths were killed on July 27, 1973, two days after they had been reported missing. Several victims' parents had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure as police and medical examiners described how their relatives were tortured and murdered. Oh, my God. I couldn't sit through it. I couldn't do it. I would pass out. No, you couldn't even read it. No. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's Uh, terrible. It's awful. So, throughout the trial, the state introduced 82 pieces of evidence, including the torture board and one of the boxes used to transport the victims, like, in the car. Um... So the, you you mentioned the hair that was found in the boxes. Um, examiners concluded that they had come from Charles Cobble and Wayne Henley. So I guess Wayne Henley had been put in that box at one point, or or he was putting him in that box, yeah. like or something like that. Um. So Henley did not take the stand to testify. Um. So July fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. So it started July first. So July fifteenth both counsels presented their closing arguments to the jury, prosecution seeking life imprisonment. The defense, a verdict of not guilty. The jury only deliberated for 92 minutes before finding Henley guilty of all six murders for which he was tried. So, the, the judge, Preston Dial, ordered Henley serve each 99 sentence consecutively, totaling 594 years. And then he went to Huntsville. Duh. So Huntsville is a town that, um, Sam Houston State is actually there at the college, mm-hmm. but Huntsville in Texas is home to one of the most notorious prisons.
0: Really? Yes. I yes. You know that.
1: I mean, that's where all the murderers go. That's like, it was, it's a huge prison, like, out in the country. Like, it's, it's, there's men's and women's and it's like where the most, like, terrible people go. It's crazy. Um, you can drive by it, kind of. It's like, it's, it's so gross. It's like, eerie. So, Brooks was brought to trial on February 27th, 1975. He had been indicted for four murders, um, but was brought to trial charged with, only with the June 1973 murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. Um, So Jim Skelton, the lawyer that I quoted up earlier that's still a practicing lawyer here, um, was his defense attorney. He argued that his client could not have committed any murders and attempted to portray Coral, and to a lesser degree Henley, as being the active participant in the actual killings. So uh, the assistant district attorney dismissed the defense's contention outright, at one point telling the jury, this defendant was in on the killing this murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. So his trial only lasted less than a week. They deliberated for 90 minutes, and he was found guilty of Lawrence's murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. And then I did read that, like, so Rhonda Williams, um, she had to go to, I mean, I'm sure she probably still is in therapy. She had to go to... Oh, yeah years and years of therapy for, like, her traumatic experience. I mean, could you imagine? No. Waking up, like, that's, like, Saw. That's, like, the movie Saw. Oh, my God. I know. So, yeah, this was a heavy one, guys. Yeah. It's
0: really close to home. I know. To our home.
1: I know. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, for lack of better term it's a fascinating story but it's, it's it is
0: a fascinating story and yeah. a lot of people don't know about it and it happened right in our backyard just,
1: yeah that was something surprising like I I didn't realize so there's been a couple of you know I listen to every true crime podcast out there and like I know that my favorite murder. I think um Georgia covered this one um, mm-hmm. um in one of her episodes but um time suck
0: did a really good one too um what's that one True Crime Garage. Yeah. Yeah. So David there are a few one, really good podcasts on this, but, but really
1: it's a, it's not a well for how, you know, if you, like I said, I'll, you know, think of John Wayne Gacy. I mean, like, that's yeah. a hugely, I mean, that's a world renowned story, but this one is just as horrific. And I mean, I've lived in never, the
0: Heights for five years. I've never, I've never even heard
1: of this story before that, which is crazy. Yeah. So, anyway, as well. There you go. Thank God there's no more candy shops that we can think of. Thank
0: God. Thank God. Do not trust a clean-cut, mid-30-year-old in a hanging white van with, handing out candy. Just don't do it.
1: And, and hanging out with only younger children. Yeah. My God. Sorry, Hello. guys. But, yeah. More times than not. But, um, anyways, well. Yeah. Guys. Enjoy your Friday. Yeah. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. Hope we didn't depress you too much. Too much. Hopefully this liquid candy is going to make you feel better. Yeah. Because it, it is going down. Yeah. Really easy. Mm-hmm. Super
0: strong. Super but it's good. Yeah.
1: Okay, we love guys. you.
0: God bless. And trust no, no one. one. <laughs> Bye. Bye.